Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, do you mind your language? Does your language mind you? How much does your language say about you? And how would you learn a new language? This and many other aspects of how we speak and why we use particular words and phrases is the stuff of sociolinguistics. And today's guest is Vera Regan, Professor of Sociolinguistics in UCD. Vera, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mick. Now, Vera, I know that one of your areas of special interest is the way in which people learn a second language. But before getting to that, can I ask you about learning a second dialect, or to my mind, it's probably a language all of its own, which is specifically the one spoken across the Atlantic. I, I frequently find myself these days compelled to ask my kids when they got back from America, even though they've never been there, because of how they speak. And I'm not just talking about the accent, it's the language Tell me, when did we all start talking American and why do we talk it? Or am I just uh, an out-of-touch old fogey who's having difficulty with the changing nature of the words we use? Mick, I think you're like every other parent in the country. We all get very hot under the collar about language. That's number one. But that's because it's really important to us. And I think a lot of us really identify very closely with the way we speak. So the fact that it's so close to our physical person makes us really, really um, intense about how we react. So that's number one. Now, the thing about our kids is we hear stuff that is definitely, we're not imagining it. We do hear Americanisms. We do hear stuff like um, the rising intonation at the end of a sentence. And this is the kind of thing where your daughter might say, there were three of us like, or um, I don't know why he was doing that. And every sentence rises at the end. Uh, now, this is very strange to us. For a declarative sentence, we think our voice should drop. The other thing that you'll find kids doing adolescents and young adults is they'll do an American flap, what we call an American flap. So instead of saying, I'm putting it there, which you and I, as we've called ourselves already, old fogies, well, the old fogies <laughs> in Ireland will say, putting, which is an affricated tea, a slit tea, if you like. And that's our Irish English way of saying it. And we're very attached to that. So we hear the kids saying pudding with the flap, and we go, oh... And the other thing we'll hear them doing is this uh, vocal fry. So there's like a creak at the end of their sentence and they'll drop the voice and they'll sound like really world weary and cool. And again, this is a very American young speaker thing. Now, you mentioned like earlier and like is one of those things that's hit us like a tsunami. So the whole world uh, of the 30 year olds are using the word like. And you're right, it's swelling from America. It probably started in, in Silicon Valley. It's moved out. The British are doing it. The Irish are doing it. The Australians are doing it. The New Zealanders are doing it. Everywhere, 
English is spoken to South Africans, you hear this like. And the like is all over the place. And one of the interesting things about like is we have a particular um, vision of what we think like does. So you'll find people saying, they can't be bothered thinking. It's because they're such woolly heads. It's because they're buying time. It's because uh, they're not thinking coherently. And one really interesting thing about this is that there's been research on it from a variationist perspective where people have done a very, very tight, grain, fine-grained quantitative analysis of the use of the word like in people's speech. And what did they find? Well, they found something interesting. They found that this was not all over the place. It's very tightly constrained by linguistic features and linguistic factors. It's syntactically constrained, but particularly it's, um, it's very um, different in, in, from what we expected. So that what we found was that the number of times young girls use this to buy time was actually very, very few in relation to the other functions that this feature had. So the proof, the pudding, the proof the pudding is in the eating, when we, we used scientific, quantitative, empirical methods, we found that we were actually wrong in saying that it's an indication of something woolly-headed. However, you're, in, in, it is certainly something that's global. It's what we call, glo people have talked about globish. So it's global English, and global English is a thing. It's not something that we're imagining or we're making up. It is actually a thing. And it's due to lots of stuff. It's due to mobility, people traveling. Um, now, it, people talk about it being due to the media. And again, we... As sociolinguists, we, we try to be myth busters. So instead of saying, yeah, it's the media, it's TV, it's the kids are watching too much media, they're listening to YouTubes, that's where they're getting all this stuff. So people did some research on that. And what they found was that there is an element of truth in it. So some things like words are, are being passed through media. Yes. So there's this, this nice can, uh, Scandinavian study which showed that kids that were listening to, to, to TV were getting the new word nerd. No, an English word, nerd, in Swedish. So that was really interesting. That was because of TV. Another thing, we've, another Canadian study, which is again bolstering up the, the evidence of the first one, was that kids, Canadian kids, uh, were ending up saying Z instead of Z. Now, they say Z like us, right? But when they listen to DV, they started saying Z. So, okay, before we get too irate about the influence of TV, we need to say that what TV does is it influences words. Now, words are just one thing. They're lexical items. Those get borrowed. This is true. What doesn't really pass from one to the other is the deeper grammatical structure of languages. So structural elements don't move. They tend to stay the same. So when you say to me, I'm an old fogey, I'm hearing all these Americans, yet yeah, Americanisms, yes, you are, you're quite right, but it only goes skin deep. So you're hearing words, what we call neologisms, uh, coinages, but we're not seeing deep grammatical changes. Right. 
Okay, I know what you mean, like, now we'll get to like in a minute, but apart from that, when you say there's a global English Vera, my interpretation of that, probably incorrectly, is that, or at the very least, it's American-led global English, and is it possibly Hollywood-led global English? Am I mistaken in that? You're partly right, Mick. (sighs) There's a lot of um, what we call valley speak influence. So... The kids in the, the, the Valley Girl speech was the beginning of a lot of these Americanisms which have spread through global English. But it's, um, it's only partly true. And one very interesting thing was when people were carrying out research on like, thinking this is some sort of cool 60s, 70s, 80s borrowing from Silicon Valley, well, what they found was when they did historical searches, they found that people in 19th century Ireland were using like. In that context, as it's used now? They were using like at the end of phrases, not in the middle, okay? So you're absolutely right. Very smart to to spot that because what we do is, in Ireland, we use like in a different way from the Americans. So while we're using like, yeah, we are, but it's embedding differently in the different dialects. So we get what we do in Ireland is we put like at the end or the beginning of our phrases, more or less. The Americans would put it in the middle. So she was like, so cool. That's the Silicon Valley version. We may do this. In fact, a lot of our young women will do that as well. But our native stuff is he was having three points like. And the like is at the end, or I might say, like, I wasn't even thinking. So at the beginning or the end of a phrase, that's closest to us. And our like at the end of a phrase is from the 19th century. So you could find some guy in West Cork uh, in the beginning of the 19th century using like gaily, and we, are, we would be surprised. So it's, the story isn't a simple one. Yes, there's the influx of like, it's global, it's in all Englishes, but it's been there in history. And it's not only in Ireland, it's been in the UK, it's in England, in... Actually, I think they discovered it even in the States. Right. Uh, Very interesting. And uh, I know you referenced the 19th century, but I can vouch personally that before the new... um, like, do you know what I mean, came in. The old, do you know what I mean, like was here certainly up towards the latter half of the 20th century. I think I can vouch for that personally. And particularly for some reason, I think, is more prevalent in Cork than in other parts of the country. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. In relation to the like, sticking with the like for a minute, Vera, you did research um, among uh, Polish people who came to live in Ireland and how they used language and you honed in on that word. And I just, I was looking into it, I found it very interesting. Tell us about that. That was really fascinating because we had looked at the use of like in Ireland and like that we, we, we knew how we used it in Ireland. So we, um, we did uh, participant observation and interviews with groups of Polish new Irish speakers, if you like. So this was after the EU invited workers and we were Ireland and Sweden and the UK invited Polish workers. And we suddenly had quite a lot of new Polish residents in Ireland. Now, we worked with these people, we interviewed them, we talked to them. 
And we were wondering how they would relate to something which was an incoming change in Ireland. Did they get it? They were learning English, of course. They were learning Irish English. And what we found was that we expected that they would use the, um, the, the Irish English usage of like and we found that this was actually true. By and large, a lot of them, instead of using the global like with, in the mid, mid clause, they used our way of doing it at the beginning and at the end. Now, when we, we, we delved down into the individual speakers, we found something really interesting. We found that identity issues were almost trumping the normal processes of language learning. And we, we investigated, for instance, taking two, two women which, who were really interesting. One of them was living in the west of Ireland. One of them was living in Dublin. And the woman in the west of Ireland was really happy. She liked the west of Ireland. She liked Irish people. And what we found was that she was using hugely high um, uh, numbers of the Irish English-like. Now, the woman in Dublin was um, less content in Ireland. Um, she had a son. She wanted the son to be able to travel the, 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 the world. So she was using the more global-like. And she was demonstrating, in my view, she was demonstrating a choice. She had adopted for the global versus the local because of the, the bits of her identity that she wanted to project. And so you, while we say people learn language, it's not like they learn it in a passive way. What we've discovered more recently in second language acquisition is that agency is a big thing. Identity issues, performativity, we can perform identities. And lots of us have kind of linguistic repertoires that we can kind of dip into as if we had an almost like an identity kit or a shopping bag that we could reach in. Um, one of the, the very interesting studies that another of my PhD students did was with um, a Goyle skull where she did, again, participant observation. And she looked at kids, adolescents again, who were learning Irish, obviously, and French. And she discovered that um, uh, they were using French, Irish and English in an amazingly creative way. The, um, the Irish was a, quite, a, a kind of Goelskull type of Irish rather than, uh, we'll say, West Muscogee dialect Irish. But their French was good. They were using bits of that and they were using bits of English. So they were, they were dipping in and out of their repertoires to perform bits of their identity that they wanted to uh, at the, on the spur of the moment, depending on who they were speaking to and depending on the topic they were speaking to. That was really interesting. They code switched across the three languages and they, they were very conscious of the identities that they were putting forward. And another thing they were very conscious of was um, their, the self-confidence they had in the type of Irish that they were learning. And one teacher had been particularly critical of the sort of 
they, he thought Dublin English that they were learning. And this young woman, I can't remember how she said it, but the gist of it was, my Irish is just as good as his, just because he's from the Gwaeltoth. I can say exactly what I want to say. So they were the kind who'd go shopping and buy the Dundrum Shopping Centre and they would be coming out with sentences like, Vime like gobsmacked when I saw him. So I, a wonderful creative mix. And that to me shows the creativity of the way our kids can weave language and weave identities and we take out bits and drop bits. Um, so instead of getting really excited about, we, as we see it, the deficiencies of our kids, to come back to what you started this conversation about, and like me, because when I'm in parent mode, I'm very different, right? In, in linguist mode, <laughs> here I am. In parent mode, totally different. But I think we're wrong, actually. I don't think we should be critical. And one of the great things, one of the great studies I, I read was um, some kids in London where there were white kids and black kids. So the white kids normally had white English. And what they did was they borrowed bits of the black kids' speech. So the black mates would come out with black speech and the white kids would mix this stuff in. Why? Because it was cool, more, more, more urban, more cool, more what they wanted to project. And because they're rejecting this RP English, which is now basically on the run in England. Long ago, people used to say, oh, you need RP to get a good job or you need RP to move up in society. Well, no longer because multilingualism, globalization has made a society where merit is more important and accent is less important. And um, in fact, one journalist recently said, RP is the dialect that dare not speak its name. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you say that. You just brought to mind there something. I, I have a bit of an interest in blues music and one individual there, Keith Richards, is a man who could have come straight out of uh, the Mississippi Delta, the way he speaks sometimes from a, a black background or whatever. But that one thing that strikes me there, Vera, in relation, you talked about Polish people coming in and the way you're describing it there, particularly with the use of the word like, but in a more general sense. So, for example, you've two... Uh, say, if, uh, two generations of the same family coming in, are they going to learn English in a way that reflects their outlook, whether, for example, the father decides I'm here, I'm here, I'm going to stay, and that's it. Whereas the, the perhaps the, the son, daughter, it's more outward looking, I'm transient here. Is the way they're going to learn English within the home together there going to have those differences? Yeah, I think so. I think people's trajectories really are hugely important and the aspirations they have for the future. Um, it reminds me of a group of Polish people that um, I worked with in France, which were very similar in many ways. And we worked with a couple of generations. And what we found was that the um, first generation of Polish people, they were determined their kids would grow up as French citizens, that they would participate, that they would have the advantage in life that they themselves didn't have. And uh, this is not this is not new. I mean, in terms of migration, it's always the second wave of people who kind of make it. The first group, it's, it's almost like they are the ones that sacrifice themselves. And in fact, a lot of the French Poles told us that. They said, 
We're doing jobs that we wouldn't do in Poland, but we want to do this for our kids. We want our kids to grow up French and we want them to be integrated into the French system. Now, the actual language that the kids were using was native French and in, in Ireland it's, it's native Irish. So um, it's almost like the first generation has to, uh, yeah, almost sacrifice itself. Another study we did was looking at um, Poles who came from Poland to Ireland and the, their use of language was very interesting because some of the Poles that came had jobs incommensurate with their qualifications or the kind of jobs they did in Poland. And we, we've honed in on one sound, which was really interesting. And we did a very detailed study, both um, um, sound study and pronunciation of what's called in bilinguals the strut vowel. It's the, st the vowel we have in bus. So the word bus uh, is that would be more or less standard, although I don't speak standard English. Um, but uh, the the more vernacular in Ireland would be bus. I got the bus. Now, what we found was that the people who were happy with the jobs, who found their jobs were commensurate with their qualifications and their um, status in Poland, they were very happy to use the bus. I got the bus this morning. Grand. The other people who were less comfortable and saw a big discrepancy between the kind of lives they had in Poland, jobs and qualifications and what they were doing in Ireland, which could have been people, you know, cleaning people's houses. Now, those were the ones who did not use our vernacular bus, but they were very, very adamant about using bus. So, you know, there's that dislocation for people who are... To, wrenched out of their own environments it, with, 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 you know, sometimes huge sense of alienation um, and loss and, and distress and stress. And it sometimes manifests itself in, in their language. And that's why language is so interesting, because it tells us so much about people. It tells us so much about society. It's, it's there's that intricate weaving between uh, language, culture and society. Absolutely. And I saw you mention somewhere, Vera, that in terms of the evolution of language in a society, um, that it tends to be driven in the first instance by younger women. Yeah. Why? Is that because in terms of fashion? Yeah, um, it, it possibly, I would think partly that. Um, what we find is that it's youngsters. When people have done these um, studies of age grade, what's called age grading studies, we find that people tend to change their use of language over their lifestyles. So something that would be, oftentimes it's looking at new things coming into the language. What we find is that the pre-teens are our, are our, our, our golden people here. The pre-teens before their mid-teens and, and after their babies and toddlers and Little, little ones of eight and nine. So the preteens between 12 and 15 are the group which are most use the innovative sound changes. After, before that, the little ones listen to their linguistic caregivers. So the parents, the, whoever minds them, they'll stick to that. The preteens then, they go to school, they have the peer pressure, they're full of identity work, they're wanting to be cool, they're wanting to be part of groups 
Um, so they're the ones that are prepared to experiment. Now, the older teens have found what's cool in inverted commas, and they'll get very conformist. They'll just use the same new things, but they're not going to vary. And then the young adults are the ones that suddenly they get into the, the, the linguistic marketplace, as we call it, the workplace. So working and living, suddenly life's very serious. So they've got mortgages and they've got kids and they've got houses to run. And then they become very normative and they're using prestige forms all the time. They don't use new stuff. They're not innovators. And then... We older ones, when we finally leave the linguistic marketplace a little bit, we relax again. So we're using less prestige forms, less intricate language, less prescriptive language, and we relax a little bit. Now, women are the, the, the girls are the ones who are innovators. But this is also a complicated story because what we find is that women like prestige forms, right? In general, that's true. However, they, if it's innovative, they'll use it. But as, as long as there's no social evaluation, so as long as people aren't sort of um, evaluating it and saying that's not right, when it becomes socially evaluated, either they accept it or they drop it. So while they're innovators, they still like prestige forms. So the use of women is a complicated one. Right. They, they like prestige, they like innovation, but they, as soon as they know it's new and maybe stigmatized, there might be pressure from above. There might be academies telling them it's wrong. At that stage, they might shift. Another thing, and just referring back, an element being the aspirational element in people in terms of some of the language they use. Does that have any association with the, the creep in language, if I could put it that way, of stuff from both the sports and the business worlds? Yeah, I mean, the business world is one of those places where there's a lot of life changes, um, innovations, and there's where you'll find a lot of uh, words um, being introduced. So you'll find a lot of new, but they're lexical items. Again, people think, oh, language being deluged by all this new stuff. But that's, it's not actually true. Yes, lots of new words. And, you know, if we were to sit down and look at the, 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 the geeky guys from Silicon Valley, we'd probably find a load of new words there. That would be totally expected. And our kids and our young people here who are working in that world will adopt those because it, it lends a certain credibility, so it lends a certain um, identity that they want to uh, use for perhaps only a short time, but certainly it's useful for right now. But if you dig deep, and again, here's where the use of, of sociolinguists is. So if you do quantitative, detailed empirical analyses, you'll find that the intricate structures of the language, the structure of the variation is not really changing. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. And what about the, the, the other thing then, um, Vera? We're living in a globalised world. I, personally, I think to some extent, accents and particularly regional accents uh, have been moderated and they're not what they were. But in terms of regional language, um, and I'm thinking in particular, my father had a great word. I, I love the word, actually, a dullamoo, 
which I, I always, you know, it, it's somebody who's a, a bit of an idiot or whatever. But those type of words that, you know, particularly in, in rural areas would have been very common. Is that dying, those elements of our language? Yeah, Um I, I think probably the answer is yes to a certain extent. Um, and again, I'm always saying yes and no, aren't I? But yes to a certain extent. There are certain... Language has always stayed the same in what's called kind of enclave areas. So there were areas that people couldn't reach long ago. They, we held on to older forms in those um in those areas, people where your your stagecoach wouldn't reach. So you didn't have the contact with the urban centres. Um, now, obviously, less and less areas like that exist anymore. Um, people, even in remote parts of Ireland, will be not unreachable. So there, there is a decline, certainly, and this is what's called levelling. We'll find that... Um, Generally speaking, we're, we're having a more hyper version of English and that will spread almost through Ireland. Um, now, having said that, it's unlikely and it se- there seems to be lots of evidence from the research that older forms and um, older structures are not going to disappear altogether despite levelling. And there is no doubt you're right, there is a lot of levelling going on. And the levelling is happen- happening from urban centres like London, where we find a thing called estuary English is spreading out through all the home counties so that you really ha- find it very difficult to tell the difference between somebody from Cambridge and Kent and Oxford and, and London, whereas 30 years ago you could. So in a sense, when your dad is saying whatever word you mentioned. <laughs> Dullamoo. Wait, okay, a Dullamoo, a Dullamoo. He may lose that and you may not use it as much. You know it, but you may not use it. Now, that doesn't mean it'll disappear. And the reason it may not disappear is the, the very laugh that you and I have had about that because there are identity things we're expressing about that. And identity stuff is really important for us all. And it's those particularities of our speech that are part of the armory in how we express who we are and our identities. So while lev- so the answer is again yes and no, yes leveling, but no our our own structures are not going to disappear entirely, no. And that brings me on that leveling that's going on, I think I can even notice it myself, but is the outcome of that that there's less colour or less variation in the language, or will that colour and variation come from, like, somewhere else? (laughs) Um, There'll always be colour in language. Language is so colourful and so interesting and so so enthralling. Um, It may come from anywhere, the colour. There are all sorts of, of, of sources of language. For instance... We may find that one of the things that changes our language is not so much TV and media, which more follows what we do than makes us do stuff. That's the, what they found. They found that actually they reflect what we do and say rather than 
make it happen. But we may find that people who are coming into the country with other languages, they may be the sort of thing that is causing language change. So our polls that we talked about early on, they may bring bits of language to us. Um, uh, Nigerian English speakers, they could easily bring features of Nigerian English that we don't, that our kids and our great grandchildren might be using. So this color, it's certainly, there's lots of sources of color. And then remember, it's not only external things, but language changes in and of itself. One of the things that um, causes language changes, simplification. Language has a tendency to simplify. And we as speakers have a tendency to say the easiest thing for us. So for instance, we often hear these days people saying, I done. Now, we, we know that it's I did, I have done. And if we want to compress that and make it easier, we may end up saying I done. It's easier, it's simpler. I've only one thing to remember. Uh, likewise, swim, swam, swum. Okay, I swim, I, have, I swam, I have swum. That's quite a lot of work. So we may find speakers in the future saying, dropping one of those, dropping the auxiliary, because it's, a, it's extra work. So it, those forces are also driving language change. It's not just the social things from outside. It's also the language internal things, processing things. Our brains are wanting ease. They're, they're, we're, we're basically lazy. And there's even a, 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 a linguistic law called the law of least effort. A French linguist dreamed up this and he wasn't wrong. So we're inclined to take the easy way out. So that, that we've, we've got change happening for all sorts of reasons, external, internal. Vera, it's fascinating. I could talk all day about it. I think it's a, a great subject and hopefully we'll have you back at some stage. Vera Regan, Professor of Sociolinguistics at UCD. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks, Nick. It was a great pleasure. Uh, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening, folks. And we'll see you again soon. And in the meantime, stand by the wall and mind your P's and Q's.